<clears throat> you don't rely upon, you know, a community, a, a civil society community, including religion. You are going to turn to the state. And so there is always that, that danger of that, is that if I have nowhere else to turn to, I can turn to the state for solving all my problems. And, well, that might work for some problems, but as we know with the paradox of government, that the, a state that is good enough to solve some of your problems is also strong enough to possibly create problems for you as well. And so a vibrant civil society, and one I would argue rests upon a vibrant religious civil society is really, really important for the preservation of freedom and keeping tyranny at bay. What is the role of religion in Western society? Some might say it's an artifact of the past. Others might say that it's the very core of our success as a civilization. Between these two positions is an undeniable truth, and that is that religion and faith play an important role in our daily lives and form the foundation of almost every institution in Western society. To help me unpack the role of religion, especially as it pertains to political and economic thought, I'm joined by Tony Gill, a professor of political science at University of Washington and a visiting fellow here at AIER. Our conversation will cover his research on the resilience of religion and its role in our institutions, both public and private. I hope our conversation provides some clarity and guidance on what is at stake when it comes to the role of religion in our civilization. Tony, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So I'd like to start off with a pretty, I guess, a simple question, but maybe not so simple. And that is, uh, we live in an increasingly secular society. Uh, academia in particular is more prone to use empirical science, uh, logical reasoning to figure things out when it comes to political economy. Um, but so what do you think is the role of religion, if any, today? That's a great question because I've had to defend myself and the things that I study throughout my entire career. You know, I had many you know, scholars and colleagues come up to me and say, you got to stop doing that religion thing because that's, that's old hat. Didn't you remember Nietzsche said God is dead? <laughs> but there's a really important question that uh, can be asked of these same colleagues that really kind of stops them in their track. And that's this. If religion is so irrelevant to the study of society, politics, and economics. Why is it the case that all of our major religious traditions in world history today have outlasted every single secular regime, dynasty, and social movement? Mm. And it's not even close, right? The oldest formal hierarchy in, in world history has been the Roman Catholic Church. Right? And you could say that dates back to you know, 1,700 years if you want to go back to the Council of Nicaea or 2,000 years to the, the death of Jesus. So that's, that's a pretty long time. You could also throw in there the Orthodox churches, right? They're also formal hierarchies. Uh, but if you want to get away from formal hierarchy, you'll start thinking about Judaism. You've been around 3,500 years, give or take a few centuries. Hinduism, almost 5,000 years. The new kid on the block, Islam, has been around for about you know, four. 1,400 years. Uh, that's really long time. Most of the, the major surviving, you know, dynasty or the long dynasties in history have not lasted more than maybe a thousand years or so. I mean, even the longest Chinese dynasty was only about 700 years. The largest, the longest standing Egyptian dynasty, a few hundred as well. So, you know, again, if you're interested in human organization and human institutions, or even social movements, right? Judaism isn't 
a formal hierarchy, but is a social movement, right? Wouldn't you want to know why these things lasted so long? Mm. And when you say social movement, uh, political system, how would you distinguish those from religion? Like, how would you class? How I guess for terms' sake, like, what exactly is a religion? What exactly is a social movement, government, etc.? Right. So th- th- that gets into very interesting definitional questions. That you know, some people are going to disagree on what makes a religion because some people say, well, they're secular religions mm. and and the like. Um, I use Rodney Stark's definition of religion. He's a, used to be a scholar of the um, sociology of religion. Wrote a number of really excellent books. Uh, and his criteria was that it was religion was some kind of systematized belief system that relied upon the supernatural mm. as part of the explanation. So this rules out you know, secular ideology. So some people would say, well, Marxism is a religion. It, it has a lot of the aspects of it, including ritualistic aspects, the you know your parades and marches and all those kind of things. But it doesn't have a supernatural entity that is embedded in the thought. Now, some people say, well, yes, it does have an idea of a supernatural entity, and it's just that it doesn't exist. Mm. But as we'll be talking and developing some of the ideas here, the, the presence of a supernatural entity actually becomes very important for the endurance of religion, why it has out, why Catholicism or Christianity or Islam has outlasted Marxism-Leninism. Mm. And I think there's an interesting um, connection between religion and the more secular uh, governments, social groups, or social movements in the sense that it, it seems like all of them, you mentioned the use of rituals, the use of a, I guess in the religion's sake, supernatural, and Marxism's sake, sort of like a broader goal or some, something like that. So do you think it just sort of says something about human sociology in general, like the way we want to organize ourselves? Absolutely. The key word that you used there was organization, right? So religions do a lot of the same things that governments or states do, and even social movements to some extent. A social movement is just a number of people who have a unified goal and are working toward you know, some kind of end that they define. And that is the unifying theme behind all of these things is that they all provide human coordination. Mm. Right. You, you could go back to Hobbes and think about the state of nature and human beings are, you know, live in this world where we're, you know, very uncoordinated and life becomes solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. Mm. Well, that's not exactly the world we want to live in. So human beings need some kind of coordination or another way of saying it is governance. And we think of governments as providing governance. They create laws and they have people that monitor those laws, the police force, and they have systems of you know, judicial uh, review that punishes people if they violate those laws. So, so government, and, and for most of my political science students and a lot of political economy scholars, they think of government as the main way that human beings actually organize themselves. But wait, is this what religions do as well? Right now, not a you know single personalistic religion. You know, I could be a religion unto myself, and that helps mm. me coordinate my behavior. But we're talking more social religions and kind of the typical definition of what everybody thinks a religion is. So Christianity, or you know, maybe more specifically Protestantism, or something like that. Religions provide a system of rules that basically help coordinate human beings. Okay. They answer some big questions like, why are we here? What are our origins? But there's a lot of thou shalt do this and thou mm. shalt not do that. Um, and if everybody signs on, or at least a large portion 
of a population signs on to you know the the rules and the norms and the beliefs of this religion we can actually you know, communicate and coordinate our behavior much easier. We can trust one another. It's like, well, you're you're a Catholic, I'm a Catholic, so we have something in common. Mm-hmm. We know all that thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. And I see you practicing the same kind of rituals that I practice. So we have something in common, and that allows us to engage in relationships, in, including economic relationships and trading and things like this. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a paper called The Comparative Endurance and Efficiency of Religion. It came out a few years ago in in, uh, the journal Public Choice. And I make this case. And there's three critical aspects of religion that help it become an effective governing system. Hmm. Would you like to know what they are? Well, I guess I have no choice. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. Um, so there's three different three different things here. We'll go through them one by one. One we've already hinted at, and that religions provide public goods. And again, in political economy, this is what you know most scholars think about the the role of government. Governments provide public goods, which are goods that nobody would provide on their own. The marketplace can't provide it. Um, And so we need some kind of cooperative effort. And government's really good at forcing people into doing that. Mm. Uh, They say, (laughs) you know, we're going to, you know, build roads or we're going to, you know, defend our system with, you know, uh, airplanes and all that kind of stuff. But you all got to pay for them. So they're going to coercively collect taxes and, and force everybody essentially to cooperate. Religions do the same thing as well, too. And one of the most common public goods, or one of the most basic and fundamental public goods that any society can have is social order, Mm. right? What we were just talking about a minute ago. You need to have uh, an agreement on what the basic rules of society are, right? Who has what, where, when, why, and how they can dispose of it. As political economists would say, basic property rights, Mm. right? Uh, We have to have some kind of agreement on if these property rights are violated, what is, you know, what will happen to you. And religion is really good at doing this, right? You have the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet and thou shalt not steal, right? All those different kinds of things. And they're they're quite simple in, in many regards. So religion, by providing some kind of unified system of values, of social norms of behavior, um, and rituals that reemphasize this, they provide that kind of certainty. Uh, it, to be real fancy in economic terms, it reduces transaction costs. It makes it easier for us to engage and communicate with one another. So religion provides a basic public good that also government does, mm-hmm. social order. I, I explain this to some of my colleagues and they go, yeah, I guess you're kind of right. Mm-hmm. Now, religions historically, because they're very good at providing this social order and coordinating human behavior, have been known to also provide what we call quasi-public goods. These are ones that are not pure public goods in terms of the definition of non-excludability and non-rivalness. But nonetheless, they are things that communities value. So things like orphanages, Mm. right, Um, counseling, uh, elder care. Um, judicial systems. Actually, the, the uh, Christian church throughout medieval history was a great arbitrator of disputes between trading merchants. Right? If two merchants got into an argument over the terms of a contract, oh, you're not providing me with the, the, the proper ale that you said that you would brew, they could go to the local 
bishop's office, you know, the local, uh, local diocese, and say, Bishop, we have this dispute. Please resolve it for us. Or they could rely on a you know, parish priest or you know, a monastery. And everybody had those things in common, right? So one trader from one village you know, was a Christian, and they would go to another village, and they were Christian too. So if we have a dispute, who do we find to arbitrate this? Well, you find, you know, a bishop to do that. And so a very, very valuable public good, a judicial system, um, is, is really critical for uh, providing social stability and economic growth. Without this stuff, you don't trade. Without trade, you don't grow. Mm. And so when it comes to that uh, basic provision of services, I know there's uh, Samuel Popkin and the, myth of the rational peasant, that was a whole case study about how communism essentially provided those similar services, and that's why it succeeded in Vietnam. It wasn't that Vietnamese people were inherently communists. I'm, sure, I'm assuming, you know, all these people that subscribe to Christianity are just inherently, like, Christian fanatics is just that it provides a lot of good services that uh, make uh, accepting that religion or having that religion in place a pretty good thing. Um, so with that said, why do you think your colleagues, you know, these very smart people at the esteemed University of Washington, um, discounted so heavily? Well, first of all, we've only been through one level of the things that religion is good at when it comes to governing. And as you pointed out here too, well, in Vietnam, communism served as that. Yes, there's, there's any number of systems of rules, property rights um, that could actually serve to coordinate society, communism being one of them. So, so far, you know, religions provide public goods, but so do governments. There's really kind of no difference between the two that would explain why religion is outlasting secular regimes. So there we have to go to the next two characteristics of religion. And the second one of these is that religion actually provides a system of governance that allows for local governance. Now, th this is going to be very surprising, right? When I, I talk about governance, I mean federalism, mm. right? Um, getting decision-making down to the lowest possible level. And a number of scholars such as, uh, you know, uh, uh, James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock have, have hailed the, you know, the importance of, of local governance and of federalism. You try to get the uh, solutions to problems at the most local level where it, it has the most impact. And you know, Catholicism has this you know, term of subsidiarity in it. Mm -hmm. And all other religions do this as well. Well, the way that religions are set up, and this is all kind of the, the major religions, especially the Judeo-Christian religions, is that things are practiced at the local level. So communities come together on a regular basis and you perform a number of rituals, right? So they gather in their parish, they gather in their synagogue or mosque. They go through the, the rules repeatedly, the, you know, you could say a constitution in terms of, uh, you know, like a secular government would have, but also a covenant. They often tell you it's a covenant with God. These are the rules. Follow these Ten Commandments and perform these rules. And, and these, they might have, you know, separate dietary rules and all these things. So people gather on a regular basis to actually remind themselves what the rules are. And in doing so, they start to take some ownership of those rules, right? We're reminded of this kind of stuff, and also provide the community which helps to monitor and punish these things too. So now, even though you could take a very hierarchical church like uh, Catholicism, right, where there's a pope at the top and he's, he's so much at the top, he even wears a pointy hat, <laughs> right? Um, that 
and you could say, well, you know, all the orders are coming from on high. But the parish level is very dynamic. And so people remind themselves, okay, this is why we're in this faith community. These are the rules and the, the social norms that we need to adhere to and the values we need to adhere to. And if anybody is kind of breaking the rules or getting a little bit off kilter, it's the community that actually kind of comes in and helps. Obviously, the clergy helps to coordinate and do this kind of thing. But it's it's really kind of neat to have local governance, right? People practicing this. They participate in the parish. Sometimes, you know, lay people, you know, rotate in in the leadership and, and, and do these things. They build up skills that helps them to communicate with one another. Uh, again, oftentimes led by a clergy, so I'm not saying it's entirely anarchic or anything like that. Um, but that that allows people to do two things. One, as I mentioned before, they can harness local knowledge to solve local problems, mm. you know, so, which is very Hayekian you know, idea that you know, solve, people have local knowledge. They know what the problem is. They know what the solutions are and can adjust accordingly. The, the second thing um, that is uh, very important is, is that they can kind of adjust the system of, of punishment according to the situation. Right? So they have local knowledge. They can adjust the system of coordination. And that allows for greater collective action. Mm. Right? Churches and any kind of religious organization throughout history have really been a source of collective action. You look through some of the greatest you know, uh, social movements, quote-unquote secular social movements, and you'll find the fingerprints of religion all across them. So mm. abolitionism, uh, prohibition, taking away the booze, uh, mm-hmm. women's the women's suffrage movement, right? People go, oh, that didn't have anything to do with religion. No. Uh, actually, the women's suffrage movement um, had a, a strand of it that was very evangelical. And people go, no, that can't be the case. We know evangelicals don't, you know, like women's rights or anything. I go, think about this. Why did evangelicals promote, you know, women's uh, suffrage? It's because they wanted them to vote and to vote away the guy's booze. Mm. It was happening right around Prohibition, so, mm-hmm. okay. Um, but civil rights movement, and, and throughout history, religion has been very good at harnessing collective action. So that's the second thing. The first thing was that religions provide public goods. The second thing is that they provide a system of governance that allows for local control or federalist control or, or federalist government governance, I should say, or subsidiarity. Mm. So when it comes to... Um, the last point of my question, why do uh, political science professors tend to discount the role of religion? Is it primarily they just don't like how old it is, how like anti, like there's not certain, there's parts of it that are not empirical. Is that sort of the skepticism? And this is what leads me to the third point of endurance. So that's a great question. The reason I think they're very skeptical is because the third thing I say that's very important for the endurance of religion is that there's a supernatural entity. Mm. Now, scholars are very smart, right? We like to do scientific method. We like empirical observations. And we're so smart that we don't have to rely upon some kind of supernatural God to explain everything for us, even if we don't understand everything. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we will because we're smart critters, (laughs) right? So God falls out of the equation. And the really big crucial difference between secular governments and dynasties and social movements um, versus religious uh, confessions is that there's the presence of the supernatural entity here. And this becomes important, I argue, is because the supernatural entity acts as a neutral arbitrator 
and final arbitrator of all disputes. Mm. Now, let me explain this a little bit because it's somewhat confusing. James Buchanan, in his wonderful book, The Limits of Liberty, one of, one of my top 10 favorite academic books, was always contemplating you know, the paradox of government. He understood that you needed to have government in order to provide some kind of social order. And so what we talked about earlier. Okay. But he says, you want to keep a really basic social government, right? one that sets the rules and then fairly and justly arbitrates any disputes that go on with those rules. But the problem is, and he called this the paradox of, of governance, was that the minute you get a government or a state that can make the rules and enforce the rules, it develops its own self-interest in such a way that it can be a player in the game too. It's not a third-party arbitrator. Hmm. It can start you know, manipulating um, the outcomes of different disputes according to their favoritism, right? So he talks about you know, shifting resources to one group or the other depending on how it would benefit you, a politician in office. And, and by the way, that's a very core basic uh, assumption in public choice theory, which is that politicians, you know, they don't work for the good of the people because it's kind of hard to define what that is. They have self-interest too, mm-hmm. right? And so that's part of this paradox of governance. What I argue is, and oh, by the way, too, there's a, I think it's on like page 165 of, of um, uh, Buchanan's Limits of Liberty. He has this wonderful statement. He says, what if, what if we could create a God that could act as an impartial um, arbitrator and be outside of any of the human conflicts as normal? And if people believed in that God on the as-if assumption that that God existed, then we would not need government as much, right? And I read this, I read this page here, and Buchanan was a known atheist. Mm. Uh, in fact, he anti-clerical. He didn't like religion very much. I read that page, and I said, hallelujah, James Buchanan has just found religion. Mm. And I turned the page, and he says, but we don't have that system. And I yelled at my book. I said, James, we do. It's, it's called religion, mm. right? So the importance of this idea of a neutral arbitrator solving the paradox of government uh, is that you have a supernatural entity that's outside of human control that gives you the covenant. It comes mm. down from Mount Sinai or wherever it might be coming from, you know, in, in the caves in which Muhammad heard the voices of Gabriel, etc. It comes down from on high. And even if human beings, the human executors, okay, or executors, I should say, it sounds like an execution, but the people who administrate the religion, if they are failed human beings, which we all are, and oh, by the way, throughout, you know, Christian history, oh, have there been some bad popes? Mm-hmm. You know, have there been bad clergy and other religions? Every single religion has had their bad human apples, right? But that doesn't reflect upon the actual covenant because the covenant was given to you by a supernatural entity. And in the end, even all those bad actors who ran the institution will be judged you know, judgment day is coming at the pearly gates or wherever it may be, and they will be punished. And if you feel secure that that will happen, and to loosen it up a little bit in Buchanan's terms, as if everybody thinks that happens, then the system of governments doesn't fail because of the failings of the human being. 
Now, to, to explain this a little bit more, there's discussion today in, in contemporary United States that the U.S. Constitution, which is our covenant, mm -hmm. okay? it's not, it's a secular one. It was written by people. We can identify who they are, right? John Adams and all those, James Madison and all those folks, right? Well, many people are saying they were failed human beings. They were slaveholders. They, they you know, were horrible in their financial transactions. And because of the failings of the human being, maybe that document is not good. Maybe mm. we need time to tear up the, the contract. But in religion, the contract was given to you by a perfect being, a supernatural entity, and you can't question that. So the contract, the covenant, can outlast the failed human beings that execute it. And this is the reason that I say religions have had the staying power much more than any other type of, of regime. Take the Soviet Union. Based on Marxism, Leninism, you could say, well, that's kind of religion. Yes, but it was written by Karl Marx. And by the way, the people who wrote this and created the rules, they're there in flesh and blood in, pers in, in person. And after about 70 years, people said, this isn't doing us really good. So maybe the Constitution that was written by these failed human beings needs to be ripped up. What you have? Fall of the Berlin Wall, collapse of the Soviet Union. Hmm. So I want to oppose, uh, essentially get your reaction to two extremes of religion or no religion. So the first point would be many people might hear what you have to say and, and think, okay, great. You know, religion sounds amazing. Why not? But you're also a supporter of a separation of church and state, religious freedom. You've written some papers on how that, that's important. So why not have a religious superstate, you know, such as like the Catholic Integralists, that's sort of a conversation these days. Why is it important that we actually separate a religion and the state? Excellent question. And this is how I finish off the paper. And it's, it, as you mentioned before, it, it gets into many of the other things I've written. Um, remember that Buchanan talks about the paradox of government. And he says secular governments always call, fall prey to this kind of thing. Religions benefit because they have that supernatural entity. But here's the problem. If religions hook their wagon to the horse of the government, mm. they're going to start basically, um, basically destroying their own institution with the failings of the government. And all governments fail. Right? They, they're going to have imperfect human beings. There's going to be corruption and stuff. And if a religion becomes too closely tied to that, it really wanes their power. It really it, it deteriorates their power. Religion is the strongest when it's separated from secular ruling power. And it's the strongest when you allow individuals to, who are members of that religious community to actually participate in it in a way that is is uh, what we would call civil society, right? It's not the government per se, but it's, you know, individuals um, as neighbors, you know, creating the rules, participating in the rules, or, um, you know, basically reproducing the rules, reminding each other what the rules are, and enforcing those rules. Um, governments don't do that. Governments rely upon coercion, whereas civil society, it's a little bit more soft coercion. Now, and people are, I'm sure... Folks out there are saying, now, yeah, Professor Gill, all those, those wars, don't you forget those, those witch trials and the, the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, that was the government acting in many ways like a state and hooking its wagon to the state, um, creating a lot of different problems. And not surprisingly, uh, I've seen this throughout Latin America, too, when the, you know, certain Catholic churches became very, very wedded to uh, authoritarian governments. People stopped listening to them. It says, if we're supposed to trust you with our spiritual soul— and you're selling out to these brutal dictators that are harming our our interests, how can I actually even believe in you? 
Mm. Right? And so religion is best when it is separated from the government. And religion flourishes when there's more religious liberty. And this is surprising, too, because people have said, well, if there's lots of religions around, which one is going to be correct? And I go, well, you know, at a certain level, all religions have this kind of respect for that there is a divine entity. Right? This is, allows for ecumenical relations between Catholics and Protestants, and between Christians and Muslims and Jews, and you know, all that kind of mutual respect. We might have some disagreements you know, on specific um, points of theology and stuff, but when you live in a, a society with a lot of religious liberty and religious pluralism grows, religions tend to you know, realize that their primary purpose is to serve their constituents, the parishioners, to reinforce their beliefs and to be respectful of others because in a world where you're not the dominant religion, you might be wrong, right? Um, you might have to give some kind of level of tolerance to others and, and respect for their, their beliefs. And, and that is the environment in which religion actually flourishes. When you get a state church, it's so tempting for the religious leaders to say, I want all of the non-believers to banish them, you know, get rid of them. And that really is, a, it's not the loving Christian way, or loving Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, Hindu, Buddhist way of, of actually proselytizing religion. You need to convince people in their heart and soul, not force them to do that. When you force them to do that, religion tends to lose its power. Mm. And so I guess on the other extreme, a completely secular state. And today we're seeing a drop in religi religiosity. Uh, America's uh, less Christian than ever. And many people might say, well, you know, not, not everyone's going to church. Um, you know, people are smoking weed. People are doing drugs. Everything's, going, everything's fine, right? The economy's booming. Everyone seems pretty happy. Do you think at all, is, is there something dangerous to the point where there might be, if religion gets too far out of public life, you might start getting issues, right? So I'm, so I guess the question is, is this sort of a secular state that we may or may not be approaching? Is that at all, is that something to be worried about? Or do you think the conservatives and the, I guess, more pro-traditional types are, a little, are exaggerating the risks of that? A, a lot of all of those things. That's a really good question. Um, and I have several answers to this. First of all, I do think religion being interwoven through the fabric of civil society is very important. Again, I made the case that religion should not get involved in politics and in secular government because um, I think that can be very dangerous. They should focus on preaching their faith, winning people over to their faith, and you know, building strong communities at the grassroots parish congregational level. Um, that said, um, religions come and go. Uh, it, 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 religion tends to wax and wane over time. And I know so many people are like, oh, the United States is so secular now and it's really horrible. And, you know, you have conservative evangelicals, you know, on the TV warning, oh, we're in a you know, state of complete religious decay. What I always like to do is go back throughout history and see if anybody else has said that before. Mm. Oh, and have they ever. Um, actually, the highest rates of uh, recent atheism in the 20th century was during World War II, mm. right? When we had survey evidence, that's when atheism tended to peak. So, oh, that was kind of horrible. But even going back further in history, the United States um, back in the middle part of the 18th century, so mid-1700s, had something known as a Great Awakening. Mm. Right? And the Great Awakening implies that there was a great sleepening 
right? <laughs> what did they, you know, they fell asleep. They lost their faith, mm. right? So in comes George Whitfield and, you know, waves his hands and everybody becomes Methodist and there's Baptists all around and everybody, you know, is going to, to tent revivals and the things like this. And then there was a second great awakening. So, right, you, what this is telling you is that, oh, you have a, a sleeping, then an awakening, and then it goes down again, then another awakening. And then there's, people talk about a third and fourth awakening, the great Pentecostal revivalism during the early 20th century. Oh, and heck, even go back further in American history into the 1600s. And most people say, well, the pilgrims came over and, you know, they wore big hats and had turkeys and made hand turkeys for their kids, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and we celebrate all that kind of stuff. Actually, during the 1600s in the American colonies was a very, very low um, participation rate in religion. People go, no, that can't be true. I saw the pilgrims. Mm. Well, pilgrims certainly were very religious, but most people who came over to the Americas at this time were young, single males. Mm -hmm. right? They were in their late teens, early 20s, because that's sociologically we know. Who goes to frontiers? Who is willing to take risks? Not people with families, not old people. Oh, I'm beyond that right now. Um, but young, single males. Mm. And are young, single males the churchy types? Not at all. <laughs> they are not. You look around in you know, your local congregation, that's not who you're, you're going to see. So uh, uh, a sociologist, Roger Finke, uh, along with Rod Stark, actually went back and, and looked at the congregation data that they had um, during the colonial times. And they found that, you know, very, there was really low levels of congregational participation because, again, you're, you're in wide open territory. People are on their own farms and homesteads, and they're young single males. Hmm. As the society grew older and matured demographically and you got more families, not surprisingly, then it started to get more religious. But it's not even that, right? Go back into medieval times, and other people have, have done studies, and they found that religious participation was even low during, you know, 1100. Hmm. We said, well, but there's all religious art and stuff. Well, this religious art because it was the church funding the art at the time. They're mm. the ones who had the resources. So they didn't say paint secular pictures. They said paint saints, mm -hmm. right? So we think when we look at all these, you know, medieval paintings, oh, it's really religious. But there wasn't enough clergy and there wasn't enough, you know, parish buildings to actually meet, you know, all the demand that would have been out there. And heck, even in Christianity, even go back to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation talks about seven churches. Two of them did a pretty good job. Five of them were chastised for losing their faith. Mm. So when I hear people say, oh, but, you know, America's becoming more secular and 5% less people are going to church than before, and it's the young people, I'm going, yeah, young people never went to church, mm. um, you know, especially after they got out of the house. Yeah, the other thing is the marriage age has expanded. So people used to get married when they were 20. Now it's in their 30s. People go back to church when they have children, when they get married. So that's not surprising that you're finding this kind of stuff. So it comes and goes. And interestingly enough, there was a, a great deal of concern in the past decade um, over this kind of increase of the nuns, people who are not affiliated with any particular denomination. Many people thought that those were atheists or agnostics. The level of atheism and agnosticism didn't really change. It's just people said, eh, I'm not really connected to institutional church. They, kind of they still believed in God, right? You, you probe the survey a little bit more. And you're like, are you religious? Yeah, I pray every so often. Okay. Um, so that, that was happening in the 90s and early 2000s. Interestingly enough, I started hearing, I, I, I stopped hearing 
discussion about that. And it was a few months ago, I went back and looked at the data and that trend is reversing. Hmm. So the number of nuns is decreasing. So it means the number of actual, you know, religious adherence is increasing. And one final note, just to take this beyond the United States, but make it more globally, people say, well, you know, modernization is going to lead to secularization. Well, if that's true, what explains the religious revivalism in Africa, right? Huge Pentecostal growth. Muslims are making great gainway, uh, great gains throughout the, the region. Um, Latin America is more religious or more people participate in religion today than in, let's say, 100 years ago because the Catholic Church was a monopoly and didn't really serve their parishioners well. Now they got Protestants competing for their souls and Catholic Church has to get their holy shit together, I guess. Mm. And um, so, uh, but the one thing that's really kind of surprising is Asia. Asia is showing phenomenal growth in the number of you know, Christ, uh, Christian adherents, but also Muslims. Mm. And Fengang Yang, a great sociologist of religion at Purdue, has written on this kind of thing. And you think about this, right? In China, in the People's Republic of China, um, people are willing to risk the destruction of their property, imprisonment, and possible death just to participate in their religion. So when people say, oh, we're modernizing and everybody's going to give up this foolish kind of stuff, well, China's modernizing. And the people who are in some of the most modern sectors of China are the ones that are going to these underground house churches. I'm like, my gosh, you know, again, that tells me religion is going to endure, right? It's going to have its good times. It's going to have its bad times, but it's going to keep having its times and endure. Hmm. So I'd like to end on the question about sort of like the the essential, does religion play an essential role in a free society or is it more so just a stable society, right? So a lot of people um, would say that it's the foundation of Western civilization, i.e. liberal democratic society, economic freedoms, all these great things. Do you think that removing religion from the question, i.e. the increasing secularism, may lead to the jeopardization of a, of a free society or is that just completely separate? I think that's such a great question, and as a lover of liberty and a classical liberal like I am, um, I view the importance of civil society as absolutely critical to preserving our freedoms. Hmm. Because if you lose the ability of people to self-govern in civil society, their ability to, you know, police their own behavior, not only in terms of self-responsibility, but your neighbors um, that you live close to, and to be able to adjust you know, punishments for violations of various rules according to the circumstances. And if you turn that all over to some distant state, mm. you know, maybe your city government can kind of deal with things pretty well. But then there's the state and then the federal, you know, somebody 3,000 miles away from you determining, you know, the rules and the punishments. That's horrible. And so you need to have a vibrant civil society. And religion is an essential component part of that civil society, even for people who are not believers, right? People who are atheists or agnostics or who are just nuns and don't attend very much. The vibrancy of the religious civil society is important because this is an area where people learn how to self-govern. They participate in self-governance and they act as a bulwark or a buffer between a very tyrannical state. It's, it's us human beings in our daily lives saying, you know what, 
Yes, government can be very important, but it can't be too uh, tyrannical because we have ways that we can push back and um, organize our own lives. So it's a beautiful thing. Hmm. And I guess to end on that, do you think that, because many people would claim that, you know, if they are secular, if you don't have a religion, you look to the state as your religion. Do you think that's over-exaggerated? Do you think people might look to like local governance as a sort of their own religion? Or do you think or do you think the claim that, you know, more government with less religion is sort of a pretty decent correlation? Well, when you lose the ability to self-govern, you know, not only your own personal responsibility, but within small communities, and realizing that you need to solve basic problems of, you know, social conflict and the like, and you don't rely upon, you know, a community, a, a civil society community, including religion, you are going to turn to the state. And so there is always that, that danger of that, is that if I have nowhere else to turn to, I can turn to the state for solving all my problems. And, well, that might work for some problems. But as we know with the paradox of government, that the, a state that is good enough to solve some of your problems is also strong enough to possibly create problems for you as well. And so a vibrant civil society and one, I would argue, rests upon a vibrant religious civil society is really, really important for the preservation of freedom and keeping tyranny at bay. Tony Gill, professor of political science at the University of Washington and a visiting fellow here at the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me here. Wonderful.